0: Thairo Seattle
1: I'm Rachel Bell, and this is Your Last Meal, a show about famous people and the stories behind the foods they love most. Today on the program, John Frickin' Waters. Yes, America's favorite weirdo and filmmaker, John Waters. His films include Hairspray, Pink Flamingos, and Crybaby, and his latest book is called Mr. Know-It-All, The Tarnished Wisdom of a Filth Elder. Yes, John is 74 years old and is now identifying as a filth elder. John loves to cook and eat, but he doesn't have much tolerance for the gluten-free, dairy-free world that we currently live in.
0: I mean, I have no food issues. I hate it when you go to restaurants and they say, do you have any food issues? Well, no, you should stay home if you have them.
1: So in the before times when you can have people over, what do you do when someone is vegan or gluten-free?
0: I don't invite them or tell them to bring their own food. I don't know. It makes me crazy.
1: For the most part, John eats very healthfully. But on the weekends, he loves to eat pie. And he sent me on a mission to answer a question that I'm sure so many of us have wondered. If you eat a couple slices of pie, or let's say you eat an entire pizza, how long will it take to show up as fat on your body? We'll learn the signs of weight gain with Seattle dietitian Mia Kwan.
2: One thing that is often overlooked is that we don't actually have as much control over our body weight as we think we do. And we'll learn all about the extremely lifelike fake plastic
1: food that is displayed in thousands and thousands of restaurants in Japan. But first, my conversation with John Waters. I'm so excited to talk to you. It's always weird when I'm a fan and I'm supposed to be this like woman in shoulder pads doing an interview, but uh, it's going to leak out a little bit because I love you.
0: Do you have have on shoulder pads?
1: I do. Of course I do. It's 1986 in my office every day and I'm riding the subway in a suit with sneakers. (laughs) Do you have shoulder pads on?
0: No, I don't. I have on a sweater, a T-shirt, and Levi's. You know, I haven't been to the dry cleaner in four months. It's a bed for fashion like everything else.
1: But what's always in fashion is John's signature pencil mustache. Can you tell the story of your mustache, where the inspiration came from, and how you keep it up?
0: From Little Richard, I always wanted to look like a white, pimp, crazy person. So I grew it in the hippie years when I had long hair, and no one would have that because they had bushy beards and stuff. But then Mink's sister, her name is Seek, a friend of mine, she said, you need to put a little pencil on it'll work button. And I thought, you're right, it's called a pencil mustache. Why do you think it's called that? Because everybody does that that has one. So Maybelline is the only kind that works, velvet black. I've worn it for 40 years, and I keep trying to get the Maybelline ad, and they don't give it to me, which I think is unfair. And now the only good thing about this virus is the mask disguise me because they cover my mustache. And also, I have a mask out now that has my mustache on it.
1: Do you wear your mask with the mustache on the outside?
0: Never, never. No, it's the only good thing. It it helps disguise me a little bit. I don't have to do selfies. That's the only good thing. Maybe selfies will be over.
1: John, in his movies, used to live on the fringe of society. People thought he and they were strange and grotesque. But as he writes on the first page of his book, things have changed.
0: Somehow I became respectable. I don't know how. The last film I directed got some terrible reviews and was rated NC-17. Six people in my personal phone book have been sentenced to life in prison. I did an art piece called 12 Souls on a Dirty Foot, which is composed of close-ups from porn films, yet a museum now has it in their permanent collection, and nobody got mad. What the hell has happened? I used to be despised, but now I'm asked to give commencement addresses at prestigious colleges, attend career retrospectives at both the Film Society of Lincoln Center and the British Film Institute, and I even got a medal from the French government for furthering the arts in France. This... Cockeyed maturity is driving me crazy. Suddenly, the worst thing that has happened to a creative person has happened to me. I am accepted.
1: What does it feel like to be accepted by the mainstream? Do you like that? And do you have any punk rock feelings? Of course of- I like
0: it. You know, I, I, of course I like it. Yes, it leads to first-class airline tickets, which is the best thing that can ever happen to you. <laughs> um, and, yeah, even since I wrote the book, even more ludicrous things. I was, I was in the Nike ad this year. I've never caught a ball in my life. And recently it was announced on the Yves Saint Laurent campaign this year. <laughs> That's hilarious, you know. So, to me, I haven't changed much. I mean, if you look at my last movie, A Dirty Shame, you look at Mr. Know-It-All has articles about sex clubs and, you know, all sorts of lunacy in there. So I've stayed the same and society has just come a little closer to me. And that's what this book is about, how to negotiate your way through so you can end up sneaking in the inside.
1: For as strange and scandalous as his movies can be, in his daily life, John craves order and is very fond of the art of record keeping. Every morning, he pulls out a fresh 3x5 card to write down his to-do list.
0: Every single day, yep.
1: And on the corner of the card, he records how many days it's been since he's last had a cigarette.
0: Hold on. I have not had a cigarette. In 6,433 days, I write it down every day on my file card that I carry in my pocket. It's the only thing I regret in my life, smoking. And at the end, I smoke five packs of King Cools a day.
1: Five packs?
0: I smoked wow. swimming. I couldn't have sex. I had to smoke. I smoked in the shower.
1: Wow. When you quit, did you find that you had to replace the addiction with something else?
0: Yes. One, I became an alcoholic for three days. <laughs> I realized that was not a good solution. Um, and you always get fat when you quit smoking. So I had to then lose the weight. If you're young and you quit smoking, you gain the weight and you smoke again, it goes right off. you. If you're middle aged, it does not go right off. you. Then you just are fat and smoke.
1: What does it appeal to you about this kind of organization and like keeping track of things in your life?
0: I think I inherited it from my father. I'm a weird gay version of my father, who was much more conservative than I am, but did Teach me about planning ahead and being organized and having backup plans. And I don't know. It gives me that's just how I've gotten through life. I don't think it hurts anybody to be organized.
1: And you take a picture of everyone who enters your home.
0: I do. I started in 1990 in any of my homes. I live in four different places. But then Polaroid stopped. Well, you can get it for a fortune if you want to it, but And so I switched to Fuji, and then you could buy that same film in drugstores like Polaroid. But that's ending, too. So once that ends, the project may have to stop.
1: Ugh, I can sympathize with John. Anyone who has ever had a favorite product that was discontinued knows the very specific grief that goes along with that. If you listen to my Kenny G episode, which is one of my very favorites, he tells a great story about his favorite curly hair product, being discontinued and John has lost more than just camera film to the world that is moving on my condolences I read that you used to cook exclusively from cooking light magazine and since that is folded what do you do now
0: I hate it. Luckily, I tore out millions of recipes, and I'm doing some that I never tried before, but I very much miss Cooking Light, and I don't get how that went out of business. It seemed like it was in every grocery store, and I lost weight on it. I really stayed my proper weight from Cooking Light, and nobody could ever tell. I cooked all the recipes out of there, and people thought they were gourmet meals. They didn't realize they weren't high in fat and stuff, so I very much miss Cooking Light, so I'm making greatest hits of Cooking Light, and the. Other are there a few magazines they tried to give you in its place when your subscription ran out? I didn't like. They weren't the same.
1: What did they try to give you?
0: I don't remember the names of them. Living Healthy or I don't know that kind of stuff. But they all, they were dreary. They weren't as good as Cooking Light.
1: I was hoping it was going to be like, here's a subscription to Cat Fancy.
0: No, I didn't get that. That, that happens with other magazines because, you <laughs> know, I used to have 150 magazine subscriptions. And daily, that's dwindling. And each magazine is now six pages long. But there's nothing you can do about it.
1: When we come back, John is mildly obsessed with maintaining his weight down to the exact pound. And I talked to a registered dietitian about the science of weight gain and how the mood that you're in while you eat can affect your weight. earlier in the show you heard john say that he was able to maintain his weight by cooking recipes from the magazine cooking light and john is very concerned with maintaining his weight it actually came up a lot in our conversation i also read that you try to eat responsibly during the week and then you go wild on the weekends is that still in your practice
0: yes Because I weigh myself every Friday morning when I weigh the least. And so I eat irresponsibly on weekends because I I weigh the most probably on Monday. And then I get back and eat properly all week. So, yes, I, I weigh myself every Friday morning when I weigh the least. And I try to keep within this five pounds. It makes a huge difference on me.
1: So, what are the things that you save for the weekend that you really love?
0: Uh, coconut cream pie, wine gum candies that are hard to get. You mostly can only get them in the UK. Nuts, I love nuts. Seas candies, I love them. i them in California now where they have them everywhere. But what I can't figure out is after I have two pieces of pie, how long does that take to end up a pound on my body? That's what I can't figure out.
1: I want to know that, too, because, yeah, sometimes I eat, like, a pig and I look the same, and then sometimes I feel like I gain 10 pounds in the same day.
0: Well, that's what I mean. Like, if I'm going to weigh myself every Friday morning, I try not to eat a piece of pie Thursday night, but I don't know if that ends up that quickly in your weight total that morning. That's what I have never been able to figure out, and even Cooking Light didn't answer that question for me.
1: Yeah, and Cooking Light went out of business. You know who didn't go out of business? Rachel Bell. I am going to get John an answer to his question. Mia Kwan is a registered dietitian based in Seattle.
2: But what I do could be better described as maybe a food and body therapist. I help people improve their relationship with food and break up with diet culture and love their bodies again instead of being at war with it through failed diets. Okay, so John
1: wanted to know how quickly one gains weight after an indulgence. How many pounds will he pack on after eating two slices of pie? And when will that pie be visible on his body?
2: I understand where that's coming from, because everyone is so worried, you know, if I overeat just one time, they're so worried that that's going to lead to immediate weight gain. But what we really have to remember when talking about how weight works is that one, it's not just about how much we eat and how much energy we spend. So there's so many other factors that's going to go into how that's determined and essentially what our body weights end up. It's actually very largely determined by genetics, like 70 more than 70% is going to be genetics, any preexist conditions, metabolism, stress, and hormone levels and things like that.
1: It also depends on what else you're eating. When you're not eating pie, are you eating lots of fruits and vegetables, whole grains, lean meats, or do most of your meals come from a drive through window? So there isn't a nice pat answer or a simple equation that applies to everyone, which makes me as answer a little bit unsatisfying. But unlike all the articles that I read about this topic online... Mia's explanation is actually true. I read um, that a pound of fat is 3,500 calories
2: (laughs) and all these things. I don't know. Is that true? No, no. It's such an outdated kind of a myth. It doesn't really translate to real life because you know what, like our body's hormone levels and like metabolic rate kind of changes on a day to day basis, um, depending on, you know, a myriad of other factors. So it really um, doesn't make sense um, to just kind of boil it down to that.
1: So after like a big Thanksgiving dinner, or just a big meal in general, and then you wake up the next day and you're like, I can tell the difference. I think that I look like I gained (laughs) weight, or I got on the scale and I
2: weigh two pounds more than I did yesterday. How can Mm -hmm. you explain that? Couple pounds of fluctuation is not necessarily from the weight gain. Like our bodies just naturally fluctuate. And a lot of that is depending on, you know, the water. Our bodies are 70% water, and the volume of water is going to make a big difference. And the feeling of I feel fat, I would say, you know, that's largely kind of psychological, right? A lot of people have negative emotions charged, especially after they had a huge meal or went through holidays or something. And there's a lot of that maybe guilt and, oh, I shouldn't have done that which is not a healthy mindset to have in order to have a healthy and a happy relationship with food and your body. But I understand where that's coming from. Because, you know, we just live in a society where it's we just have so much pressure. And the so called ideas of what an ideal body looks like creates this kind of stress and worry and anxiety. So as much as I understand the emotional impact of that, when we're actually talking about the scientific facts, it doesn't actually mean that's immediate weight gain. I had heard
1: that Mm -hmm. if you do stress out a lot about should I be eating this you know I'm going to gain weight just really not being able to enjoy the treats even because you feel so guilty I heard that that actually can cause you to gain more weight is that true
2: Absolutely. So one thing that happens there is your level of stress hormones are going to increase. So I'm sure you heard of cortisol. That's one of those stress hormones and our bodies are supposed to have some level of cortisol to keep us actually healthy, but having enormously high amounts of that is going to wreak havoc on our physical health even because it contributes to something called, you know, kind of chronic inflammation in the body. And that's going to increase our, our risk for chronic diseases like hypertension, diabetes, Diabetes and heart disease. And so we want to keep our stress hormones in check. And so when we're creating these added stressors um, because we think, you know, we have these food rules or I think I shouldn't eat this or that, your cortisols are going to be kind of off the charts. And when that happens consistently over time, that can even have an impact on metabolism. So your body's metabolism might slow down. You have a higher level of cortisol that the body needs to kind of fight off. And like you said, you're not able to actually enjoy. The, the foods that taste good. And there are even studies that show, these are really interesting research studies, by the way, when they studied two groups of people eating chocolate, and in the one group, uh, they were really able to enjoy the chocolate and didn't have that mentality versus, you know, the other group where they believe that chocolate was so bad, and they believe that they were really going to gain a lot of weight from eating chocolate. And guess what, the group that actually believed that the chocolate was going to make them gain weight actually gained weight while the other group did not.
1: So be like one of those women you see in ads for salad or yogurt. Go into the kitchen alone, throw your head back, laugh heartily, and take a bite. If you're going to have a slice of pizza or you're going to have an ice cream sundae, enjoy it. Since doing this interview, I actually have been looking at food and my body differently and trying to erase that stigma of the guilty pleasure and trying not to pinch my fat in the morning to see how much weight I gained from eating pizza last night. So I love the message. There is no bad foods. and I'm going to try to get my brain to go along with that message.
2: To put it in short, no one meal is going to make you gain weight and no one meal is going to make you lose weight. One thing that is often overlooked is that we don't actually have as much control over our body weight as we think we do. And that's also why, you know, diets fail. Everyone has kind of a predetermined kind of a range of what we call a set point weight range, which means when we are, you know, enjoying food, nourishing the body, eating in balance, the body doesn't have a hard time staying there. And that's a good thing for us because that means, you know, we can be pretty healthy without trying to be if we can get over the fact that, you know, at that point, not everyone's going to be stick thin. And so that also, I hope, encourages people to think that I don't need to stress over everything that I eat because one, you know, weight is so much more complex than um, food and food is also meant to be enjoyed.
1: When we come back, we're going to talk about the one food that is not meant to be enjoyed, hyper-realistic plastic food. But I was just looking online at this big bowl of plastic ramen with its glistening plastic egg and plastic scallions and plastic nori and these long strands of chewy plastic noodles. And I have to say, the plastic looks really delicious. And John reveals his last meal, and it's just as odd as you hoped it would be. What would your last meal be?
0: My last meal would be a single leaf of arugula, because when you die, you lose control of your bowels, and I don't want to be a mess for anyone.
1: You are the second person to say
0: that on this show. Really? Who else said it?
1: Uh, have you ever read any of Mary Roach's books?
0: I've heard the name, but well, she she's right. Yeah, I would want to just make sure, because I've always heard that, that when you die, you lose control of your urine and your back so basically i want nothing in me
1: (laughs) um gosh what was i gonna say you really you caught me off guard with this one uh let's see (laughs) i (laughs) know i'm like you were gonna ask
0: how how would i cook it or something (laughs) well basically i would get it and wash it myself that would mean it was straight (laughs) from the farm and it would be one leaf moderate size and i would chew it for a long time so not only that one leaf wouldn't even come out it would be so well shredded.
1: Okay, but here's the thing eating a vegetable is not the direction you want to take if your goal is to end up in Tidy Corpstown, USA. I got so flustered in the moment by John's Last Meal that I completely forgot what writer Mary Roach said when she was a guest on the show. Mary wrote one of my favorite books. It's called Stiff, and it's all about human corpses and what happens to bodies that are donated to science. So she's an expert on the topic.
0: I happen to learn that
2: if you eat proteins, they're almost completely absorbed and you don't have any leftover material, any roughage or fiber that you have to dispose of. Um, and one thing I also, another thing I learned in STIFF is that when you die, the
0: anal sphincter relaxes and the contents would come out and so I would prefer to have a meal that is high protein, low residue, as they say, so that I, you know,
2: I'm a tidy corpse. I don't want to gross anyone out. I don't want any any stranger to have to wipe my butt. And that would enable me to eat some of my favorite foods, white tuna, sashimi, oysters, raw oysters, fresh, raw Miyagi's or Kumamoto's, the soft boiled egg with sea salt. And all of that would be completely absorbed. So you're not going to have a salad because there's a lot of uh, roughage that's going to have to come out when you die
1: unfortunately for John, I didn't have my wits about me to remember this fact and pass it on to him. So everyone quiet. I'm talking to John now, John, John, listen, if you hear this, which I know that you are listening right now, swap out your single arugula leaf and, you know, swap in a single slice of sashimi or like a chicken leg or a quail's egg. I know you don't want to eat much. Just the tiniest little piece of protein you can muster. So is the reason that you want to be you know, clean in that region when you die because you don't want to be embarrassed even though you've already died, or you don't want to inconvenience anybody else?
0: All three. Who wants to sh yourself when you're 75? You know, who wants to inconvenience the poor person that finds you? And third, I keep telling you the resurrection, the only thing I believe in in the Catholic Church is going to happen, and I'm worried you come back nude.
1: as you've already gathered John is a little quirky he has amassed quite a collection of fake food in his home
0: I started it when I used to go to Japan and because they have whole areas that are like Canal Street New York that are fake food because every restaurant in Japan puts out front a wax version of what they serve inside so you can get hams turkeys everything so I collected there and uh, and then people started getting it and find it at thrift shops and but, but I like the old kind, the dirty old kind of a piece of meat or something. I don't know. But it has to be old. It has to be, like, ugly and, like, one piece of broccoli or, like, more pitiful the better to me.
1: Where do you have them displayed in your house?
0: They're in my dining room mostly and in the kitchen.
1: Do you have a very kitschy house, decoration-wise?
0: No. No, I don't think so. I have Oriental rugs. I have contemporary art collection that's pretty great and books. Kitschy? No, I don't have, like, that's what people expect I'd have, like, 50s modern and drive a pink Cadillac and stuff. No, I don't.
1: While having fake plastic food in your house is not common, it is ubiquitous in restaurants in Japan. So often when you go to a restaurant, either casual or upscale, there will be a big glass display case that you can see from the street or when you step inside the restaurant, featuring every single dish on the menu identically represented in plastic.
3: You have sushi, different types of ramen soba and udon noodles, pasta, we can do hamburgers, we can do steak. I mean, the list goes on and on. Desserts.
1: That's Justin Hannes, founder of Fake fake Food Japan, a website that sells fake plastic food made at a factory in Osaka, Japan, that's been around for more than 70 years. Justin is an American who has lived in Japan for nearly two decades. What is the fake food called in Japanese?
3: It's called shokuhin sampuru. So food sample, if I were to translate directly.
1: Justin says the plastic food displays help bring in foot traffic to restaurants, and it helps entice people's appetites. And as a foreigner who lived in Japan for about a year and could not read Japanese, that's my shame. I just have to admit it, though. It was an ordering lifesaver. And because Japanese restaurants tend to be meticulous about presentation, when your dish comes to the table, it will look exactly like the plastic version. But what's the history of fake plastic food in Japan?
3: It really took off during World War II because when the American servicemen from the military were based here, they obviously couldn't understand Japanese, where they were residing in those locations. Restaurants wanted to, you know, gain their their business. They contacted some of the fake food manufacturers that they knew and they created visuals of the items. And this made the service military men understand, obviously, what these restaurants had to offer. And that started a huge boom.
1: Now, I had never thought about who makes the plastic food, but Justin says that it's a craft, an artistry. And even though he uses the word factory to describe where they make these plastic foods, everything is made by hand.
3: If you're aiming to become a craftsperson, it's kind of like an apprenticeship. You have to approach a manufacturer. There's several manufacturers in Japan, probably over 100. It's kind of like a paid internship. And the apprenticeship in general lasts probably two to four years and to become advanced level of creating fake food after your two to four year apprenticeship, you're probably looking at one to three years after that. So at least five years to become advanced level in this art form.
1: Now that I know that it's handmade by skilled craftspeople, I have this whole new appreciation for these display cases. So if you want to buy some fake food, if you're a restaurant, uh, you would go to the Fake Food Japan website and you can either pick from the assortment of foods that they already have made or you can have something custom made.
3: They actually send the physical item to our factory. Now, if it's something that's going to melt or anything like that, you've got to send it by a freezer truck. So if something needs to be cooked, the factory will actually cook it there based on the recipe that is received from the customer. And then from there, they will create a mold. And then from this mold, they will create a prototype. And from there, they'll create the replica. So it's a, it's a very daunting process that takes a lot of time and energy. But it all starts with actually having the physical item in the factory's hand. That's why the items are able to be replicated with such minute detail. So that's where the level of realism really comes into play.
1: And custom-made pieces are not cheap.
3: A sushi dish for four people... Looking at it, probably around $600 US. The level of difficulty in creating item reflects the price. So, for example, you'll have ice cream. But then the customer would like chocolate sauce being poured on the ice cream from above. Basically, it looks like the chocolate sauce is like floating in the air. For example, you have another one with ramen. They want to have the chopsticks holding the noodles up in the air. And there's a level of difficulty that's obviously required to create items of this regard. And that's why the price is reflected in that.
1: Before we wrap up, since John's last meal has to do with politely disposing of food from the body, <laughs> I don't know. I'm trying to be polite here. I love I love bathroom talk personally, but this podcast is not the place for that. Um, I thought that I would end with a piece of dinner party advice. John says you should never use a host bathroom unless it's for number one.
0: Oh well you should never ever. Do that. I go in someone's bathroom at their house and I see a basket of magazines next to the toilet, the most disgusting thing I've ever seen in my life. You should never go in a public restroom. Aren't you trained? Never go in the airplane bathroom. Only eliminate while you're in your house.
1: And that was John Waters' Last Meal. Pick up his latest book, Mr. Know It All, and support your local bookseller. And next year, if we can all sleep in the same room in bunk beds again, look into getting tickets to John's annual adult summer camp, Camp
0: John Waters.
1: Did you go to summer camp yourself when you were a kid?
0: I did. I went to a couple of them. I didn't hate them. They're weird. I, I don't know if I'd send my kid to camp. There's a lot of sexual activity always going on in camp. They never tell you about. And my summer camp, which is the best camp of all, all the campers meet all year round. It's a worldwide community. People come to this camp. They get married. They bring their families. It's truly amazing. And it's all ages, all sexual types, all races. So um, this camp, to me, is the best one.
1: Did you have any sexual awakenings or experiences when you were a kid at camp?
0: Yes, but I don't know that they were legal, and, uh, and, and I talk about that in the book. I did run into a counselor that was probably, you know, I was a teenager there, but he was, you know, maybe he shouldn't have done what he did. But then I said I needed money for the movie, and he gave me $30,000, so you work with what you got.
1: What is your camp all about? What are the activities?
0: Oh, we have, like people making arts and crafts uh, people come dressed as my characters and live as my characters for three days we have guest counselors this year was going to be patricia Hurst and kathleen turner they're coming next year we've had ricky lake tracy lords mink Stoll, pat moran it's an amazing experience people come from japan people come from all over and they don't know each other and they share cabins together and they bonded we call it Jonestown with a happy ending
1: Thanks to Seattle dietitian and food and body therapist Mia Kwan. If you want to work with her, go to MiaKwan.com. It's M-Y-A-K-W-O-N, and find her on Instagram at foodbody.peace. Thanks to Justin Hannis, founder of Fake Food Japan, you can admire all of that super realistic plastic food at fakefoodjapan.com. Are you really into food or are you just kind of a business person and this happens to be your business?
3: Into food in in, in what way? <laughs>
1: As soon as he said that, I knew the answer to this question. I mean, I would say that I'm someone who is more into food than the average person. Like, I love cooking and eating, and I read about food, and I write about food, and I'm just kind of like ensconced in the whole thing. I
3: guess I would be on the other side of that (laughs) spectrum. I'm purely for the business.
1: Your Last Meal is produced by Laura Scott and me, theme music by Prom Queen. Help out the show and um, my self esteem, and maybe Laura's. I'm not sure how it makes her feel, uh, by leaving a review on your podcast player. Or if you don't want to write something, just tap out that five star review. Follow along on Instagram, Your Last Meal Podcast. If you ever have a question, that's where I can answer it. I'm Rachel Bell, and this is Your Last Meal.